Psalm 19 is where we are tonight. We're going to finish our three-week study in Psalm 19. We took three weeks because Psalm 19 breaks up into three nice but connected sections. First, in verses 1 through 6, the psalm described God reaching out to folks he has scattered all over the globe. He does it through creation in conjunction with having put eternity in the heart of every human being. Eternity in your heart is like a receptor sensitive to God's continual broadcasting of his glory through creation. Creation is like a universal language stirring the heart of every man. Those who see him in creation and then seek him will by his providence receive further revelation. And so that's what we saw in that first set of verses. And then the next set of verses, verses 7, 8, and 9, David made a dramatic, it seemed at first, change and started describing the law as the greater revelation. Uh, And by that, David meant the first five books of the Bible. We would rightfully say it's the entire completed word of God from Genesis through the revelation. David hinted there at the power of the word not only to save, but to sanctify. And by that, we mean to empower the saved man or woman onto a life of godliness. But we talked about what we saw as the connection between those first two sets of verses that God is reaching out to everyone through the revelation of creation and those who respond to it, he sees to it they get greater revelation such as the word of God. And so that's why David can so easily move into a talk about the word. But having talked about the word saving you, then he wants to talk now about it sanctifying you and how we grow in the word. And so these closing verses focus on the walk of the person God has gone to great lengths to save. Conversion is just the beginning of what God has planned for you. And just something to tuck away, I don't think we need a reminder of this, but it's always good to, uh, to portray God as he's portrayed in the scripture, and that is reaching out to save. Any theology or teaching or philosophy or whatever you want to call it that seems to restrict God's desire to save individuals is something that we just need to reject as not as as against the character of God. And so this psalm is portraying God as as actually scattering people all over the globe so that he can reach them through this testimony of creation and greater revelation. And so now once he's reached an individual, he wants them to grow and uh, be on the path that he has for us. And so verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Gold is what is most valued in the material world. I mean, you might value something more than that, diamonds or something, but, but generally gold is the gold standard. Uh, and that's all you need to know. We have that expression, the gold standard. We use it to describe something that is the highest mark of excellence. We might say, for example, that Rolls-Royce is the gold standard of automobiles. More to be desired than gold immediately elevates you to heavenly places. Reminds you that the greatest business of life is spiritual, not material. Wealth here on the earth is corruptible. It is stealable. While we must live in the material world, our journey through it should always be along a spiritual high road. I find it interesting that in the heavenly city, the New Jerusalem, it's described as streets being made of transparent gold. Our pathway, literally in heaven, is going to be paved with gold, so we ought to walk on it now, so to speak, by seeing ourselves in the heavenlies with the Lord. And so David starts out by saying that... uh, 
the converted individual is elevated to thinking heavenly thoughts from heavenly places and you live life from a whole new perspective. Honey is a natural sweetener. The Bible is a supernatural sweetener. Add its principles and its promises to whatever cup you've been called upon to drink and there will be a sweetness of God's presence. Cups in the Bible are typical of what we indulge in or what we are going through. Those are a couple of things that uh, cups can represent. For example, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, we cannot drink of the Lord's cup and of the cup of demons. And so uh, we can't involve ourselves with the things of the Lord and the things of demons or the things of the world at the same time. It's one or the other. And then Jesus, of course, spoke of his suffering on the cross as a cup that he wished could be avoided. And we're probably most familiar with this image of the cup of suffering as if it's poured out for us to drink deeply. And so if yours is a cup of suffering or when it is, God's word will be honey. You'll need to find the honeycomb in your time of suffering and then add the word that God gives you to make the cup palatable. Uh, I want to be careful about that. It's not that, it's not always so easy. You know, you find yourself in suffering and it doesn't help to come alongside a suffering person and say, oh, just add honey to that. You, know, you, should, you, you don't need to struggle with this at all. You need to walk by faith and not by sight. All those things might be true, but I know in my own experience, and I think it's yours as well, there's a period of time in which you struggle with the Lord to put things into perspective. And that's a good time. It's a time when God is working on your heart, showing you different things. But eventually, you'll find that uh, you, your suffering will be sweetened once the Lord has spoken to you and once you've applied his word to your situation. And so verse 11, moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Warnings are an important part of life. Bridge out is pretty important if the bridge you want to drive across is out. You ever see those signs, bridge out? Do you think, I wonder what that means? And then you keep driving. It's always amazing. I mean, you know, without making fun of anybody who's been hurt or um, even died in the current storms and earthquakes and stuff like that, there's always one guy that just keeps driving through the flood. I mean, what does he think? That his car is going to suddenly turn into a transformer? I mean, they're always in little Toyotas too. I mean, you know, once that water comes up to your window, I think it's time to back up. But, you know, you always think you can go through. I've done that, by the way, down in San Bernardino. We used to get pretty serious rains in San Bernardino. And you think, well, I can probably make this. Eh, not always. So you want to pay attention to those warnings. But this word warning means more than that. The word means to be bright or to shine. Then it has the connotation of to cause to shine or to make something light or to admonish or to instruct or to warn. So it has all of those meanings. It's a very big word. The essential idea here is to shed light on a subject so as to show it clearly, to make plain the duty of it and the consequences of it. And so I think what David is getting at, or one of the things obviously, is that the Bible sheds light on your path so that you can see the direction of it and the consequences from straying from it. All of us have been Christians for any length of time. You know what I'm talking about. When you get off of God's path, uh, there are always consequences, natural or supernatural, uh, and then you get back on it and you think, what was I thinking? That was not a good detour. 
Stay on God's designated path, and it says there is great reward. And obviously here we're talking about spiritual rewards. And this is, I think, important as well. We have a notion that if we obey the Lord and do everything just right, that he has to reward us now as well as later. Well, you will be rewarded with a sense of God's presence and his strength, but this side of heaven, you'll also have lots of terrible suffering, no matter your obedience. Uh, we live in a fallen world. Our bodies are unredeemed, or, you know, not fully redeemed because we're going to get uh, incorruptible bodies. We have a we're born again spirit and an unredeemed body. So you're headed for trouble. And so the person that thinks that well, if I just obey God and do everything He says I can do, which no one can do, by the way, anyway, but even if you could, uh, that God is obligated to bless you this side of eternity with material things and health, that's just not going to happen. Job is the biblical example. He was targeted by Satan because of his obedience. God was putting him on display as an obedient, upright, righteous individual. And that's why the devil wanted him. It was because he was so upright that he was poured a heaping cup of suffering. And uh, man, did he drink that thing. Commentators like to point out how much Job was rewarded at the end of his trial. And it's true if you read Job 42, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. He had a lot, but Job gave him twice as much, or the Lord gave him twice as much as he had before. But some of what he had before was irreplaceable. He lived with the loss of his original sons and daughters. It wasn't something any amount of new prosperity would ever compensate for. There would always be a loss. There would always be a sense of, of sorrow. Nobody, you don't ever go up to somebody in, who's lost a child and say, well, you can have more children or you have other children or anything stupid like that. There's always going to be an emptiness and a loss. Some of you have suffered this kind of loss. You know what I'm talking about. And, and so, uh, you know, we can't expect our life is not going to be touched by sorrow and terrible sorrow this side of eternity. You know the nickname commentators give to the prophet Jeremiah? Who knows? Shout it out the weeping prophet. Why did he get that nickname? Because he wept, that's why. And yet we look at Jeremiah and we think he was a tremendously successful servant of God. Difficult, tough ministry. And we have to assume that he understood joy and rejoicing and his relationship with the Lord and all of that, but he was still the weeping prophet. Jesus described as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. <laughs> The Apostle Paul records his own discouragements at least once and his anxieties too. The, the guy that said be anxious for nothing, you can find passages where he has an anxiety. It's a, it's a, you might say it's a positive anxiety because he's concerned about the well-being of Christians, but he's still anxious. I wonder what it would be like to be around Paul. Do you think anybody came, you, you think Timothy came up to him and said, hey, Paul, be anxious for nothing. I, I, don't, I don't think he talked to Paul very much, to tell you the truth. The psalmists alternate between joy and despair. Don't you love reading the psalms? They're so real. Usually they start off in the doldrums and then they get some wind in their sails at the end, but some of them just the opposite. I mean, there's so many roller coaster moments in the psalms. So what am I saying? I'm saying as we walk by faith and not by sight and can reckon God's presence and his promises to be true, we can walk in victory over our circumstances, but we need to get through to that victory and that can either take time or we can hit obstacles. The human heart is not just deceitful and, and hopelessly wicked, 
it's very difficult to get to the bottom of it. You and I will never even fully know our own hearts the way obviously God does. So God is always performing these surgeries on us that take time. Some of you have had different illnesses or injuries or, you know, this obvious example. Some take a long time to heal. And so there are different things that happen to us as Christians that take relatively different times to gain total victory over. In the meantime, uh, enduring is a victory as we wait for the Lord. I think one of the things we would say about Job is that he endured. He didn't turn away from the Lord. Uh, He went through it and he came out the other side of it uh, refined as gold. But it took some time. I don't know how long Job was on the ash heap. No one really knows. Probably it's a period of months at least, not just days. Uh, Takes a month just to read through it. But, uh, you know, it it was quite a long period of time. But he endured. In the city of Corinth, Paul grew fearful, so much so that Jesus appeared to him and said to him, fear not. Do you think when Jesus comes to somebody and says, hey, Gene, fear not, that you say, oh, I wasn't afraid? Yeah, no, I don't think so. And so Paul was afraid, so much so that the Lord appeared to him personally and said, don't fear, I have many people in this city. And it kind of turned around his ministry. And so that tells me, all of this tells me I might have to endure until the Lord comes to me through his word, and I have that breakthrough that makes everything make sense. And so if you're going through something, endure. If you're trying to help somebody through something, weep with them when they weep and rejoice with them when they rejoice. Don't try and get them to rejoice when they're weeping. Uh, It's not going to work. Weep with them. Verse 12, who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Errors is how David described those times he ignored God's warnings. The incident with Bathsheba comes to mind. When he inquired about her, his servants warned David she was married. Here's how it reads. Someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And so it was kind of a a veiled but straightforward warning to David. Hey, you're looking at a married woman and what you're thinking of doing is wrong. It was a warning. By the way, we commonly accuse Bathsheba of bathing on the roof, but it was David who was on the roof, and from that vantage point, he did a peeping tom. From a roof, he could look down and into an otherwise enclosed courtyard. Houses in those days uh, were built around an open courtyard in the center, uh, and you couldn't see from outside, but you could see it from above, and that's where Bathsheba was bathing. It's certainly possible she was trying to be seen, but that's our speculation. And there are other clues in the story that reveal her as the victim. David didn't just interrupt a normal afternoon bath. He spied on Bathsheba as she was conducting a ritual of purification. This strengthens the conclusion that she was not trying to entice David. And when David finally gets busted by the prophet Nathan, his parable in 2 Samuel puts the blame squarely on David. If you, you read through the parable and you think there's, it's all David stealing something that belongs to someone else. And so looking back on your errors, they seem so stupid. I mean, when you, when, you, when you sin and you fall into sin, you think, what am I doing? How stupid am I? This didn't work the last time I tried it. Didn't give me any satisfaction. Didn't help me. In fact, it ruined lives 
mine included, what am I doing this for? And so warnings, very important. Adam Clark says of secret faults, quote, from those which I committed and have forgotten, from those for which I have not repented, from those which have been committed in my heart but have not been brought to act in my life, from those which I have committed without knowing that they were sins, sins of ignorance, and from those which I have committed in private for which I should blush and be confounded were they to be made public. And so there's a whole laundry list of secret faults that we need to be aware of. Verse 13, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Presumption comes from pride and self-confidence. It was the devil's downfall, led to his great transgression, which was rebellion against God. We are prone to pride. It's wise to acknowledge it. We're to approach life with humility. Someone defined humility by saying, it isn't thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. Sometimes we uh, joke around about just being dead, uh, you know, putting to death the flesh. And, but it, it's an interesting thing. How would a dead person react to certain things? It's always, the reaction's always the same, by the way. There's very little reaction from a dead person. But if you came up and insulted a corpse, how would that corpse react? It, he wouldn't say anything. He would just lay there. Uh, you could do almost anything to that corpse, say almost anything, treat it almost any way you want, and it would not react. And so the Bible says, hey, die to yourself then. What do you need to defend yourself for? What do you need to argue with people about? Just let it go. Deal with it. And so, um, but it comes from our pride and our self-confidence and our, our lack of humility. We, we, you know, we don't, we don't want people to get one up on us. People that cut in front of us in line, people that cut us off on the freeway, Christians in the church that mistreat us and stuff. We, we want to get even all the time. Don't do that. Stay dead. Verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. This is a parting prayer as the psalm ends. In light of everything David had said, he desired that his thoughts and his actions be acceptable to God, strengthened by him who is the redeemer. We started by seeing how God was talking to hearts through creation, how he brings greater revelation to those who respond seeking him, his word being that ultimate communication. There's a third testimony described in these last verses. As we walk in the word, in God's strength, non-believers can see something they cannot see in creation, and they see something before they ever read God's word. They see you as God's living epistle, known and read by them. They can see what it means to be loved by God, to be saved, to be forgiven, to be filled with the Spirit, to be hopeful of eternity. And so uh, be mindful of the fact that we, as Christians, are meant to be a revelation of God to non-believers. Creation is a revelation, declares the glory of God, ministers to the eternity in hearts, the word of God, of course, the power of God unto salvation, that's great. You and I, if you're a Christian, you're also a testimony and a revelation. I was talking to one of the ladies at Walmart today. Every one, I shop every, if you want to help me, I shop every Wednesday at Walmart in the afternoon. I love shopping at Walmart. I actually do. I think it's super fun. And uh, I'm not being facetious. It's one of my highlights of my week. And so I go to Walmart and I always see this same gal. 
And uh, she goes to the church. We talked for a while. She came up to me. She found me in line today, and she said, she said, hey, uh, the uh, neatest thing happened to me today. Uh, a gal came up to me and said that her therapist wanted her to go to Walmart and buy a devotion. And they point, everybody pointed her to me because they all know that I'm a Christian. And that's, that, what a great testimony. They all know that I'm a Christian. She's a living epistle known and read to all the people there. And um, that's, that's the kind of thing we're talking about. And so God, you know, God is always reaching out, is he not? Remember we went through the revelation and we talked every week about, yeah, this t- yeah the, the sun is falling, the sky is falling, people are on fire, they're living in caves. Guess what? God is reaching out to them. He's warning them, giving them one last chance, one last chance, one last chance. Because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. Jesus died on the cross for all men, especially those who believe. He said, if I be lifted up on the cross, I will draw all men to myself. We take that to mean that the gospel is available to everyone who's ever lived. And part of that is you and me. We're a part of that just because we're Christians. You don't have to be a perfect Christian. That's a good thing because you never will be. You just need to be a Christian and point people to Jesus. And, and, and that's something you can do in his strength. Amen?